everyone, and welcome to Inside and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Fomichenko. Today's topic I personally find fascinating. We are going to talk about near-death experiences. I would like to introduce you to my guest, Dr. Bruce Grayson. Dr. Bruce has studied near-death experiences for more than 45 years and is one of the world's leading experts on their science and significance. Dr. Bruce is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia. He is also the author of the 2021 book called After, a doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. He is also a co-author of Irreducible Mind. Dr. Bruce has co-founded the International Association for Near-Death Studies, an organization to support and promote research into these experiences. For 27 years, he edited the Journal of Near-Death Studies, the only journal dedicated to near-death research. Dr. Bruce, it is a great pleasure and a great honor for me to welcome you to the show. Well, good morning, Natalia, and thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Dr. Bruce, let's start in the very beginning. What is a near-death experience? What does define it? Near-death experiences are profound subjective experiences that many people have when they come close to death or, in fact, are pronounced dead. They have mm-hmm. uh, very unusual uh, features to them that are hard to explain in terms of a scientific uh, uh, perspective, such as a sense of leaving the physical body, uh, mm-hmm. reviewing your entire life in a matter of seconds, encountering other entities such as uh, deceased loved ones or spiritual beings such as deities, uh, feeling an overwhelming peace, sense of peace and well-being, and then finally mm-hmm. returning to the body. How did you start doing this? Was it that you had experienced yourself or, or something else? No, I, I had gone through college and medical school with a materialistic mindset that the physical world is all there is. And then when I started my psychiatric training, I started meeting patients uh, who were describing what we now call near-death experiences. We didn't have a name for it then, but leaving their bodies when they were close to death and, and seeing deceased loved ones and so forth. And since these were psychiatric patients, I assumed these yeah. were hallucinations and they weren't real. I couldn't make any sense of them. And then years later, when Raymond Moody published a book in 1975 called Life After Life, he described near-death experiences and gave us that name to use for them. And he described hundreds of people all over the world who were not psychiatric patients having these same mm-hmm. types of experiences. So I thought, well, as a scientist, um, my job is not to run away from these things that I can't understand, but to yeah. try to figure them out. So I started collecting cases of my own and trying to understand what's mm-hmm. causing these things. And I collected thousands of cases. And now 50 years later, I'm still trying to understand what's mm-hmm. going on here. I've heard um, that you had this experience with the patient that was able to see and hear everything that was happening. In, in one of my first weeks as an as a intern, I was seeing a patient in the emergency room who was uh, had overdose and she was unconscious, so she mm-hmm. couldn't uh, couldn't talk. But her roommate had brought her in, and I talked to the roommate in a separate room about fifty yards away, and got a, lit- a lot of information from the roommate. Um, when the call came in to see her, I was in the cafeteria eating my my dinner, and um, the call startled me, and I, I spilled some spaghetti sauce on my tie, so I put on a white lab coat to cover it up so no one would see the stain. And when I was talking to the roommate, it was very hot in that room. So I opened my coat to mm-hmm. get a little air 
and I exposed the stain a little bit. Um, but no one saw that except the roommates. I closed it back up again as soon as we finished. Uh, the, the patient herself never re- regained consciousness that day. But when I saw her the next morning, I introduced myself and she said, well, I remember you from last night. And I said, well, how can that be? You know, yeah. you were, you were unconscious. I she said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. And she started telling me about the conversation with the roommate. And I just didn't know what to make of that. And then she finally said, and I saw the red stain on your tie. And that just stunned me. I couldn't make any sense wow. of that at all. But, you know, I was, I was a young kid then. I didn't know what I was doing. I certainly didn't know about near-death experiences. Um, so I just, I couldn't make any sense of it. So I just filed it away. I didn't know how to ask her more questions about it. I didn't know anything about near-death experiences. So I don't regard that as proof of anything. It's just sort of proof of how startling these things were to me. I, I was actually kind of frightened by this experience. Yeah, of experience. course. Of course you were. And um, they definitely had profound impact on you since you've been doing yes. this work for so many years. I would be curious to understand what happens with the brain, I would assume, of a person who is having this experience. I also understand that it's difficult probably to measure this exact moment because, um, you know, uh, it doesn't happen for a long time. But are there any studies that shed some light on what exactly happens in the brain? Well, it's a very challenging question, Natalia, because you can't really measure someone's brain while they're in the middle of a near-death crisis. There have been a yeah. few uh, examples of a person who happened to have their uh, heads hooked up to brainwave measures, electroencephalogram, EEG, when they happen to have a cardiac arrest. Uh, but these are single episodes, usually in people with seriously damaged uh, brains and not typical uh, human beings. So it's hard to make any sense out mm-hmm. of what happens during these individual cases. No one's been able to do a study of um, a large sample of near-death experiences when they come close to death. Now, there have been some people who have tried to measure what's going on in someone's brain after they've had a near-death experience as they're trying to recall the experience, which of course isn't the same Mm -hmm. thing. But what they found is that there's no one spot in the brain that's uh, being activated when they recall the near-death experience. Um, all parts of the brain are involved. And that kind of makes sense because the near-death experience involves perceptions, involves thinking, involves emotions, hearing, uh, seeing, and so forth. So, of course, all parts of the brain might be activated when you have this experience. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And I've heard from you know my personal experience that there is a certain chemical called DMT that is arguably found in the brain during birth and death. Is there anything that is connected to, to this fact that it's a completely um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, wrong That's part. an intriguing question because many people who take uh, DMT, dimethyltryptyline, um, recreationally have mm-hmm. very profound experiences, some of which can mimic near-death experiences. Um, they are not the same thing. In fact, one person mm-hmm. who had a very profound experience with DMT and then had a near-death experience said to me, in the DMT, I saw heaven. In the near-death experience, mm-hmm. I was in heaven. So it's not quite the same thing. Uh, it mimics it. Now, we did a study. Uh, this was an international group that studied about mm-hmm. 800 accounts of near-death experiences and more than 15,000 accounts of drug experiences with with different types of psychedelic drugs. And we compared 
what people said about these experiences, just looking at the language they used. And the drug that came closest to near-death experiences was not, in fact, DMT. It was ketamine, which is an anesthetic. Hmm. Uh, the second most common uh, was psilocybin. Um, now, DMT was one of the top five, but of the top five, they all work by different mechanisms in the brain using different neurotransmitters. So it doesn't really tell us anything about the, the mechanism of the near-death experience. They just say that these drugs, um, something about their action in the brain can mimic a near-death experience. Mm, interesting. That's very interesting. And then also continuing on the topic of connection of the brain and experience itself, from what I can assume when you are having near-death experience, you you might be drugged, uh, for instance, or you, your brain might be lacking oxygen as well, but at the same time, it doesn't prevent the clarity of right. the experience itself. So it's, it's it almost supposed to inhibit it, but it actually does the opposite. How would you explain that if, if I'm correct? If my yes, assumption you is are correct. And that's very confusing because we we, these these experiences sound like they're hallucinations, like they're very active brain going out of control. And in fact, um, it seems to be just the opposite, that when the brain is shutting down, like when you are having a cardiac arrest and there's no oxygen going to the brain, mm -hmm. um, you have the most elaborate and vivid experience of your life, which shouldn't shouldn't happen. Now, this is not the only example of something that has uh, a vivid experience when you have less brain activity. Um, we've been doing some neuroimaging studies of people on psychedelic drugs for the past 20 years. And we used to think that these drugs act by activating the brain, by stimulating it to hallucinate. But what these studies show instead is that when you take these drugs, when you have a very elaborate spiritual experience with them, that's associated with a decrease in brain activity, not an increase. So again, it seems like mm. getting the brain out of the way allows the mind to flourish and to experience all these things. Oh, wow. So that brings me basically to the next question that the brain and the mind is not the same thing. Yeah. And the brain is rather an inhibitor or a filter of some sort of what mind is capable of. Right, right. I, I've, I was raised in a scientific uh, household in a scientific culture. So I was taught that the mind is what the brain does. And all our thoughts and feelings were created by the brain. And these experiences are not really explained by that model. But that's not the only model. In fact, uh, Hippocrates, a uh, Greek physician, said 2,000 years ago that the brain is the messenger or interpreter of the mind. And that mm -hmm. thread has been common in neuroscience for the past 2,000 years as a minority opinion, of course. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that there's a mind somewhere out there, I have no idea where, and what the brain mm -hmm. does is receive signals from the mind and then filter out some of them and just let some of them in so the body can function. Kind of the way a television set will uh, mm -hmm. select, select from all the, uh, the channels that are out there and filter all those out except one that you want to listen to or watch. And it'll convert those electromagnetic waves into a signal you can see and hear. And without the television set, wow. you wouldn't be able to see the show, but it's still there. You just can't see it. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea is that the brain does the same thing. Um, that makes sense because mm -hmm. the brain evolved, as all our physical organs do, uh, to help us survive in the physical world. So it makes sense that it lets in only those stimulations that 
are relevant to finding food and shelter and an appropriate bait and avoiding predators and poisons. And it filters out anything that's irrelevant to that, like spiritual things, like seeing deceased loved ones or seeing deities. Those aren't helpful in surviving the physical world. So the brain filters those out. And it's only when the brain mm-hmm. is going offline, so to speak, when it stops filtering, that we see all these things that are in the spiritual realm. Yeah. So it's either not necessary for immediate survival, or it might just not be necessary for the purpose of the physical experience, which we call life, so to say. Right. Right. And then it appears only when it is determined by some reason to be meaningful yes. in some exactly. way. That's interesting, which also leaves me with an idea that if only we were able to control this, you know, remote switch on this television, and are we going to ever be able to control it or or not? Because the capability yeah. seems to be there. Well, this may be the link to um, psychedelic drugs like DMT, that the way these drugs may act is by reducing the filtering ability of the brain. That doesn't mean it's mm-hmm. going to give you a near-death experience, but it suggests that it may allow you to have a near-death experience. It may get the brain out of yeah. the way so you can have one. Yeah, from my research, I know that there is a default mode network, yes. the area of the brain that is precisely being switched off. Yes. So that from what I understand, the information that we get from sensory organs, you know, visual, auditory information just comes into the brain sort of unfiltered. And therefore, we can hear colors or, yeah. or do something other than normal perception. Right. The default mode network is responsible for our sensation of being an ego, of being a separate individual, separate from the rest of the universe. Yeah. And if that gets shut down uh, or even minimized, then you have the sense of being a part of everything else in the universe. And this is what people in near-death experiences and other mystical experiences report, that they're part of something greater than themselves. They're not separate from the rest of the universe. Do you think it's helpful? And if it is, how is it helpful? Well, people who come back from a near-death experience uh, almost universally say they are totally transformed by the experience. And one way is that they are no longer afraid of of death. They've been there and they Mm -hmm. feel like there's nothing to be afraid of there. And that changes their lives. If they're not afraid of dying, then paradoxically, they're not afraid of living either. They're not afraid of taking chances mm. and you know, jumping with both feet and enjoying it to the fullest because there's, there's nothing to lose if you make a mistake. You just If the worst that happens is that you die, that's great. Um, so yeah. they enjoy life much more. But they also come back with this feeling of uh, being connected to everybody else. And that makes them much more compassionate and loving towards other people as well. You know, the we have, almost every religion on earth has this precept that you should treat other people the way you want to be treated. But for near-death experiencers, it's no longer a guideline we're supposed to follow. They experienced it as a law of nature in their near-death experiences. Yeah. So they come back saying, well, this is the way it is. If I hurt somebody else, I'm hurting myself. And if I'm helping someone else, yeah. I'm helping myself. And that changes their life for their forever after. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it kind of makes me thinking that, you know, the paradox that you've pointed out that you're if you are not afraid of dying, you're not yes. afraid of living, which also makes me think that if you're afraid of dying, you're also afraid of living. Well, that's that, in a that's way. true. You become much more cautious and you don't take risks and you kind of uh, shut yourself off from a lot of possible experiences. 
Yeah. And more on this side, if you're not afraid of dying, meaning that death is not something where everything ends, which is supposedly something that the neurodiest experiencers learn. Would you call yourself spiritual? What is spirituality for you? That's a great question. Because when near-death experiencers talk about being more spiritual, they don't talk about mm -hmm. being more religious. Uh, they talk about it in terms of being feeling more connected to other people, to animals, to nature, to the divine. And it's a sense of being part of something much greater than, than ourselves, much greater than the physical world. And that's kind of what they mean by being mm -hmm. more spiritual, not tied to the physical world. Yeah. And that's exactly the objective of the podcast, to somehow breach science and spirituality to show that they are not incompatible. They are actually sometimes um, two sides of the same coin in, in some way. And science just right. might want to catch up still a little bit. And, and the spiritual is both inside and beyond. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hence the, the name. Just coming back to the experiences themselves, you mentioned that there are certain traits that, you know, most commonly appear yes. through throughout the, the time that you've researched it. And maybe you could give us some particularly interesting examples that are also common in their death right, experiences. Right. Well, the most common thing is this overwhelming sense of, of peace and well-being. And people who yeah. were approaching death, often with great pain or great fear, suddenly become overwhelmed by the sense of being loved and accepted and feeling good. And they have a sense mm -hmm. that there's nothing to be afraid of, that no matter what happens, it's going to be, it's going to be good. And that pervades yeah. the whole experience for most people. Mm -hmm. Many also have a sense of a life review. And in a matter of, of seconds or fractions of a second, they'll review decades of their life, not just like they're watching a movie, but actually re-experiencing it in very great detail. Mm. And for many of these people, they experience it not only through their own eyes, but also through the eyes of other people involved in the experience. And let How me give you an example of this. Uh, Tom was in his 30s when he was working underneath a truck, um, and mm -hmm. the truck fell down and crushed his chest. And he lost mm -hmm. oxygen, and he had a, a very elaborate near-death experience with many different parts of it. But one part was a, a very detailed life review. And he remembered mm -hmm. as a teenager driving down a street with his truck and a drunk man walked in front of the truck and he had to jam on his brakes to avoid hitting him. And he was furious that this man almost dented his truck. So mm -hmm. he rolled down the window to his truck and started shouting at the man. And the man being quite intoxicated, okay. reached his hand in the window and slapped Tom across the face. And that was mm -hmm. too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he got out of the truck and started beating the man up and left him bloodied on the, on the median strip and then got in his truck and drove away. Now, before he had his near-death experience, Tom couldn't have told you how many times he hit the man, but in the experience, he felt all 32 blows of Tom's fist on his face. He felt his no own way. perspective. He felt, felt the, the, the rage and the adrenaline rush of, of being a teenager, but he also felt what was going on in the other man's mind the humiliation of being beaten up by this teenager, the 32 blows, his nose getting bloody, his teeth going through his lower lip. And he came back from that experience realizing that this man is the same as I am. There's no boundary here. And what this man experienced, what I did to him, I did to myself as well. 
And this is typical of what oh. near-death experiencers say. They come back saying, I know that I'm part of the divine, but so are you. And so is everyone else on this planet. And they come back just totally changed by that. Yeah, I can totally imagine. Yeah. Another, another experience that often happens is a sense yeah. of leaving the physical body. And in some mm -hmm. cases, we can say, oh, that's just um, imagination. But often they yeah. can report accurately seeing and hearing things that they couldn't possibly have guessed. Uh, for example, one fellow I knew who was in his mid-50s, he had um, a, a crushing chest pain, got himself to the, to the emergency room, and he had four of the arteries going to his heart blocked, and he had to have uh, emergency cardiac bypass surgery. And he said mm -hmm. that in the middle of the operation, he left his body, rose up above it, and he looked down, and he saw his surgeon flapping his arms like he was trying to fly. <laughs> When he told me this, I've been a doctor for about 30 years, and I, I just couldn't imagine any doctor doing this. I'd never seen this. You don't see doctors on television doing that. So I assumed mm -hmm. that he must have been hallucinating, maybe from the anesthesia he was given. Mm -hmm. But he insisted, no, this is really, I, this is what I saw. So with his permission, I talked to the surgeon and asked him about this. The surgeon mm -hmm. said, yes, I, I did do that. He said, you know, he, really? he, he, he trained to be a surgeon in, in Japan and he mm -hmm. developed this unique habit. He would let his assistant start the operation while he put on his sterile gown and gloves and he'd walk into the operating room and to avoid putting his hands on anything that wasn't sterile, he put them flat on his chest where they wouldn't touch anything. And then mm -hmm. to point things out to his assistants, he didn't want to risk touching things with his fingers. So he used his elbows to point things out. Ah. And he'd never seen an American doctor <laughs> so do funny. this, but he did it all the time. Uh, wow. Yeah. So his, his report was correct, yes, essentially. It was, correct. it was not a hallucination. In fact, it was an um, I would say that this is not an unusual experience. Uh, Professor Jan Holden at the University of North Texas studied 92 cases of near-death experiences in which the person's out-of-body perceptions could potentially be verified by other people. And she found that in 92% of them, they were entirely accurate. In 6%, they oh, were wow. mostly accurate, but had some, some inaccuracies. Only 1% was wrong. So the vast majority of these out-of-body perceptions are totally, totally accurate. Wow. This is incredible. And that's a lot to take. Yeah. And it almost seems like, you know, when the brain is switched off and our mind wanders, we have access to, to the common minds, to the mind yes. of everyone's and, and during, you know, different times, not necessarily during the moment of near-death experience, like it was in your example with the surgery, but also in the moments, the significant moments of our lives before. Almost like the information database, if you yeah. want, of every feeling, every event, every action that happens. That, that's fascinating. Yeah. I think I've uh, read somewhere, um, I don't know how true it is, but there was an article about neurosurgeon who was very skeptical about neurodes experiences. And then at some point he cut, I think it was meningitis. And then his um, area of the brain that is responsible for memory started getting damaged and he had to take a surgery himself. And during this 
surgery, he apparently had a near-death experience when he reconnected with, you know, some deceased ones and, and he, he had other things happening. But then when he came back to Earth, let's call it this way, um, he was completely recovered despite the damage in his memory mm. region, which almost to me meant that this information out there um, can be just downloaded to the hard drive if you want, which is our brain here locally. And even despite the damage to this hard drive, if the channel with the cloud system or database exists, then it, it's all okay. What do you yeah, think about yeah. this? Yeah, that, that was um, Dr. Eben Alexander, a neurosurgeon. Um, yeah. And he didn't have surgery himself. He was in his deep coma from the um, a rare bacterial uh, meningitis. And mm -hmm. he was brought to the emergency room in the early morning in a coma. And they did a CAT scan imaging his brain. And you could really not see the outlines of the brain. His head was so filled with pus from the infection that you couldn't make out any of mm -hmm. the structure of the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a rare, rare bacterial infection. It's very unusual in adults. And the survival rate is about 1%. So the doctors mm -hmm. didn't do much for him because they thought, well, this is a dead man. Even if he survives, he'll never be able to walk and talk and function again. Mm -hmm. So they just tried to keep him alive. And... He was in the coma for uh, six days. And during that time, he had a very elaborate near-death experience in which he encountered this woman he had never seen before um, oh, okay. and who was kind of a, a guide for him. He also hmm. saw several things going on around his body lying in the hospital bed that he later reported. And it turned out they were all completely true. And because he was... Uh, Describing specific events, you could tell exactly when he was having these perceptions, because they only happened at one time. And during the time he had those perceptions, the nurse's notes were recording that he was in a very deep coma and couldn't possibly have had any his brain functioning in any way. Mm -hmm. It turns out that Eben Alexander was adopted as an infant um, by the Alexander family. And decades later, uh, he met um, the family that he had that was his birth parents. And they had had several mm -hmm. children, one of whom was a, a woman who had died in a car accident a couple of years before his near-death experience. And when he saw a photograph mm -hmm. of her, he said, that's the woman from my near-death experience. Now, oh, of course, wow. we have no way of verifying that. We only have his say that that was the woman. But that's another example of, of seeing someone in your near-death experience who was dead, but you didn't know was dead. In fact, you didn't even know she existed. Wow, this is crazy. This is really like... An information database and <laughs> <laughs> clouds all over. Um, this is amazing. And in the examples that we've discussed, it was more about information of the current life, if if you want, if, regardless of the moment. It can be, you know, the moment of near-death experience itself or earlier in the years. Is there any evidence or um, reports of the same happening for past lives, if I dare bring this here, or, or future? Yes. In fact, there's uh, some evidence for both. Not a lot. But there are occasional mm -hmm. people who say that in their life review, they also reviewed things that happened in a past life. And mm -hmm. usually those are things that we can't verify. Um, of course. Because they, they dealt with um, an 
we don't, Tom, we don't really know it was. And, you know, they say, well, I was, I was a, uh, a farmer in, in Wales in the 1600s. And, you know, we can't do a whole lot to, to verify yeah. that. Yeah. But one person who I know had a near death experience in which he remembered being shot down over the Pacific during World War II. And he knew the type of airplane. Um, he knew the first name of a person who was in that plane with he, he was, that he was supposed to be was. And he knew mm-hmm. the date that it happened. And when he came back from his near death experience, um, his daughter looked up uh, the records and she found that on that particular date, there was only one pilot of that type of airplane that was shot down and had the same first name that he had remembered. So that's mm. very tempting to say, well, he was obviously remembering this past life. Uh, but, you know, as you suggested before, he might have been just getting information from the cloud, from some database in the mm-hmm. cloud, not from his own personal life. We have no way of verifying mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that's that's the tricky part. You cannot really verify paranormal yeah. things because they come from your subjective reality as opposed to objective reality, which normal yeah. science operates in. Yeah. And it's very difficult. Um, from what I understand, near-death experiences happen to people who are not necessarily of age, but longer in life. Do they also happen to children or, or teenagers? And if they do... Is there, have you ever heard of any possibility of, you know, a kid or teenager remembering something about past life for this matter? Uh, Not past life. We do have lots of experiences told to us by teenagers and many by children as well. Some people have studied particularly Mm. uh, children who have near-death experiences. And they don't often report past lives. They sometimes report visions of what's going to happen to them in the future that later come true. Um, Again, uh, many times we can't confirm them. Um, they will tell us after the event came true, they will tell us, yes, I saw this in my near-death experience, and we don't have a way of verifying they actually did or whether they just retroactively made that up. But we have mm-hmm. some cases where the uh, the child's statements were all were written down before the, the predictions came true. Let me give you an example of this. This is a fellow who mm-hmm. was um, a young child in England uh, during World War II, during the Blitz. And yep. he was hospitalized with pneumonia and had a near-death experience in which he saw himself as an adult sitting in a padded chair in a living room and his son and daughter were playing on the floor in front of him and he heard his wife in the kitchen making uh, making dinner and mm-hmm. he saw something in front of him that he didn't recognize and it was against the, the far wall and he didn't know what it was. Um, so his, his parents wrote all this down because they were fascinated by this. Um, and then many decades later, he was living in California and sitting in his easy chair in his living room and suddenly realized, this is the scene from my near-death experience. And his children were sitting in mm-hmm. front of him playing. And his wife was in the kitchen making dinner. Yeah. And in front of him was a television set, which they didn't have in England in the world. Ah. And so he couldn't know what wow. it was. Um, So we have a few examples of that very detailed uh, that came true exactly the way the person predicted they would. Yeah. Wow, this is fascinating. I wonder, though, I mean, I would understand that when you're at the 
you know at the age of uh, at the age of life and death and you have this experience mm-hmm. of your past and you experience what you've done to other people through yourself and you suddenly reevaluate your values and um, understand the life better and start care, caring about others and come back to life in the new version of yourself i would understand that more than having an experience about the future early in life without clear meaning as to why yes. this experience have occurred. Yeah. yeah these experiences yeah. are very troubling sometimes to children because they come back mm-hmm. feeling that the usual things children do don't have any meaning for them anymore. They mm-hmm. tend to think about the, the grander issues in life, the things that only adults think of, and they often have trouble mm-hmm. fitting in with, with their peers. Hmm. Have you tracked those patients to adult life? Have they done something significant in life? Um, I have. I have. Um, they don't um, become world leaders, um, but they do things that uh, anything, anyone who is spiritual-minded would say are significant in life. They can become very mm-hmm. kind, generous people. They tend to go into helping professions like healthcare or social work or teaching or, or clergy. Um, they don't mm-hmm. become cutthroat businessmen, and they don't become violent people. Uh, they just become good mm-hmm. people. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Maybe it's actually the reason why it happens to open people to the life of spirituality mm-hmm. in a way to, you know, sort of bring the light to others. Yeah, but, you know, in some way, um, most people who uh, have spiritual experiences and then open them up to this other way of living do it intentionally through some religious ritual or spiritual ritual um, by prayer or meditation or uh, some other practice, psychedelic drugs sometimes, Mm -hmm. but they're doing it intentionally. They want to change something. But a near-death experience comes when you're not looking for it and often not wanting it. Of course. And you suddenly have these totally different values of what you want to do with your life. And that can be very difficult Mm -hmm. to deal with. It can be very difficult for your family to deal with. All of a sudden you have this, tremendous transformation and your spouse and your children don't understand why you're different all of a sudden that can be very difficult Mm -hmm. to deal with yeah of course of course maybe it's um it's (laughs) part of the higher plan that Mm. our ego does not necessarily comprehend and on this note i'm also a big fan of oliver sachs work and he once mentioned that he had a patient that was struck by lightning Mm. and he apparently had a near-death experience during that after which he has discovered a passion for music Uh in himself, which which has became so overwhelming that he didn't do basically anything but just playing the music and playing the piano and his family went crazy with him and they even end up divorced with his wife then they got back together but it's uh, it's just to illustrate how profound the yes. change can be after a near this yes, experience yes i i know that fellow that was tony sicori who was an orthopedic surgeon who had no particular mm-hmm. interest in music and he was he was struck by lightning. He was talking on a telephone outside, and a thunderstorm came up, and the lightning went through the telephone and, and struck him. And mm-hmm. he came out of that yeah, exactly. totally transformed and sort of um, obsessed with, with with music. And started writing music. And he had never he didn't know how to read or write music. He started writing symphonies, mm-hmm. and you know just became a musician rather than a surgeon after this. Yeah, this is crazy. 
how do you know about all of them? Were they all your patients in no, no, some no. part of your life? Uh, no? <laughs> so they, they approach me when they see something that I've done or said. And for example, the people who watch this podcast will contact me and say, let me tell you about my experience. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a good, good job yeah. you have. <laughs> I should have said yes. better <laughs> in the beginning of my life. Thank you so much, Bruce. It was such an interesting conversation. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Maybe something that you haven't shared before or something that you feel would be important um, for them to know based on the research that you've done? Well, I think it's important for everyone to know that these are not rare experiences. You know, studies done mm -hmm. in the US, in the UK, in Germany have said, shown that about 5% of the general population has had a near-death experience. That's one in every 20 people. So someone in your workplace, in your classroom, yeah. in your family has probably had a near-death experience. And I also wow. think it's important to realize that these are not associated with mental illness in any way. They're normal, normal, they're experiences that happen to normal people in abnormal circumstances. They can happen to anybody. And they have profound after effects, both positive and negative, that need to be addressed. And finally, I think it's important to realize that these raise serious questions about whether the mind can function outside the brain. And if that's true during life, that suggests it might be able to do that after the brain dies as well, leaving open the possibility that we have an eternal life. Yeah, that's exciting, beautiful, and very powerful. And um, yeah, I always want to be a person experiencing this thing but i don't think it works this way <laughs> you're still, you're still um, young yeah well let's see let's see but it's uh it's interesting to put things into perspective that you know literally one person in your classroom or yeah. in your workroom yeah. can have this it, it's crazy thank you so much dr bruce it was such an amazing conversation i'm so happy i've met yes. you and thank you for sharing about this interesting topic thank you for all your work really really appreciate well, thank you it. natalia it's been a pleasure talking with you